I'm Jo Case and I'm books columnist for In Daily and I'm delighted to be here with Hannah Kent to talk about her brilliant new historical novel, A Queer Love Story Partly Set in South Australia, Devotion. And before I start, I'd like to acknowledge that the land we meet on today is the traditional lands for the Kaurna people and that we respect their spiritual relationship with their country. We also acknowledge the Kaurna people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide region and that their cultural and heritage beliefs are enduringly important to the living Kaurna people today. This acknowledgement of country feels especially relevant and important this evening as the connection between traditional owners and their land and the importance of respecting and acknowledging those beliefs is, is really important to Hannah's novel, which partly unfolds on the land of the Paramunk people in the Adelaide Hills. Devotion is a book that is deeply respectful of the beliefs of these people and inherently acknowledges them as traditional owners of the land that we now know as Handorf. So I would like to just quickly acknowledge the Paramunk people, pay our respects to them as well as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Hills region and acknowledge that their heritage and beliefs are enduringly important to the living Paramunk people today. Hannah Kent requires no introduction, but it is respectful to give her one, so I will. Um, Hannah's first novel, the international bestseller Burial Rites, was translated into over 30 languages and won the ABIA Literary Fiction Book of the Year, the Indie Awards Debut Fiction Book of the Year and the Victorian Premier's People's Choice Award. It was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction and the Guardian First Book Award, the Stella Prize and the International Impact Dublin Literary Award, among others. It's currently being adapted for film by Sony TriStar. Hannah's second novel, The Good People, was published in 2016 in Australia and New Zealand and in 2017 in the UK and North America. It's been translated into 10 languages and was shortlisted for the Walter Scott Award for Historical Fiction, the Indie Books Award for Literary Fiction, the ABIA Literary Fiction Book of the Year and the Readings Prize for New Australian Fiction. It's currently being adapted for film by Aquarius Productions. There are a lot more things that I could say about Hannah and her career and what she does and what the accolades her book has, books have received, but we do want time to talk about devotion, so I'm going to move on. Um, and just give you a tiny little potted um, uh, blurb or idea of what devotion is about. Uh, and then we're going to hear a brief reading from Hannah before she and I have a chat about the book. Hannah's first novel set in Australia, or partially in Australia, Devotion Follows Han, a nature-worshipping young woman knitted into a close religious community on her journey from German Prussia to South Australia. Fleeing religious persecution, religious persecution at home, her Lutheran fellow villagers re-established themselves in the Adelaide Hills, in the settlement that would become Handorf, displacing the Paramunk traditional owners and their culture in their quest to preserve their own. Han's life is transformed when Tay, her first great love, arrives in her village not long before their migration. Han, an outsider, feels recognised on a bone-deep level for the first time and feels a connection too with Taya's herbalist mother, Anna Maria, rumoured to practise witchcraft. Please join me now in welcoming Hannah to the stage. Thank you, Joe. Thank you all very much for coming tonight. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be able to have an in-person event, especially during times like this. So thank you all for very much for coming and thank you for wearing your masks as well. I understand it's not the most comfortable way to watch an author talk, but thank you for ensuring that everyone remains healthy. Um, the section I'm going to read uh, is, the book is, the book is narrated by Hannah, the character that Joe was mentioning. Um, and this is a section, uh, without giving too much preamble, of her recognising and beginning to understand the Australian landscape. The sound of this country is one long sustained note that does not end. 
It is a humming that holds all the other music of this place in harmony. Every other sound is threaded upon it. It was at the port that I began to curate new litanies. Between the bullock drivers that rumbled in from Adelaide, the sailors, the merchants, the English come in search of labourers, I found words given to the music I heard against the constant run of the wind amongst the rushes and sand dunes. She-oak for the tree with long-scaled needles whistling the wind in a way that made my skin lift. Magpie lark for the two shriek calling peep in changing hours. Salt paper bark for the crooked trees groaning wooded cupped fruit. Mangrove, wattle, salt bush. In the months that came afterwards, I learned new words as the congregation did, as we all did, as we crossed the dusty ticking plains of Adelaide. I placed them next to one another upon the deeper vibration of this country. Galah, cockatoo, lorikeet, kangaroo, wallaby, possum, emu, goanna, quoll. Now, years later, sitting on the lip of this valley, I can make prayer beads of the trees that crown me, the small living things glimpsed if I am still and silent. Red gum, blue gum, quandong, stringy bark. And the birds ever here, ever singing, a liturgy to govern the hours towards gods of cry and shriek and call. Kookaburra, magpie, shrike, thrush, wagtail, karawong, crow, bubuk. Scripture may no longer roll off my tongue in smooth certainty, but my mouth is still full of spirit. Holy writ of living things, each one a prayer against the teeth. Nature had always been my whetstone, had always made me keener, and after we reached the foothills, I felt myself sharpen to life. The landscape on the ascent to the ranges was unlike anything I had ever seen before. I had thought the pine forest back in Kay a place of divinity, but this country was infinitely more sovereign. Each morning, while it was yet dark, the birds filled the air with singing so that the sun, when it rose, brought light as symphony. The birds were everywhere, hosts of raucous angels, black-bodied, yellow-topped messengers of shrieking delight, soot-streaked coral masters, feather-fat kookaburras suddenly, alarmingly, proselytizing to the dawn. Even the trees grew in such a way as to welcome the sun to the world. In Prussia, canopies were dense and thick, Forest floors were deeply shadowed. Here was a place of lightness. Leaves dappled thin and shiny, fluttered pink, grey, green. I crushed them in my palm and smelled medicine, healing. Hot, still days dropped branches, all bone crack and brought the sounds of bees. Sometimes I smelled honey warming the air. Animals were muscled fur and liquid eyes, or scaly, thick beads of tongues darting. All of it, trees and possums and kangaroos and bright beads of ants circling trunks, veered from stillness to flashing movement in an instant. There was energy here, rough softness. Sometimes it rained and when it stopped, the air was perfume, a clean scent of wet leaf and damp sweetness. I wanted to drink that washed summer hair. I imagined it tasted of reprieve. My father too was invigorated by everything he saw. He ran his fingers along the ground and filled his nails with soil. God's gifts, he said, smiling at Matthias. Papa's voice and prayer was the first to interrupt the dark. He scaled the ridges with kingdom-come strides and remarked aloud upon the extravagance of sunlight, the yawning orange of rock faces, the views that suddenly appeared like paradise when the trees fell away to vistas that stretched to a shining belt of sea. He wore the hardship of the journey like a hair shirt, the wonder and the deprivation and the physical toll were bringing him closer to God. It was all sanctification. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> I'm sure everyone who hasn't yet read the book definitely wants to read it now. Thank you, Hannah. <laughs> um, I'd just like to start by uh, talking about your inspiration for devotion. Um, you wrote the novel as a love letter to your wife, Heidi, uh, after she proposed to you following the marriage equality plebiscite. And I wondered if you could just um, talk a bit about how she and your relationship with her um, inspired the novel and, and, as you've said, made it possible. Yeah, sure. I mean, I didn't set out... I mean... With my previous two novels, I had quite a strong idea of what it was that I wanted to write about. That wasn't the case with this novel. I kind of meandered my way into it um, through a course of various interests and then real-time real personal events that affected the sorts of stories I wanted to tell. 
initially, after I published The Good People, I, I was considering writing, setting a novel in Australia. I was a little bit hesitant for a few reasons. Um, one, I was anxious about ways in which you could write about the colonial history of Australia without celebrating it. And also, I, uh, I was a little bit worried that my familiarity with this country uh, would prevent me from asking the kinds of questions I had when I'd gone to Iceland or when I'd gone to Ireland and I was an outsider and I felt like I had keen eyes because I was sort of situated on the periphery. I wasn't immersed in that culture. I wasn't already familiar with the kinds of narratives. I felt like being an outsider in those situations had made me actually really well-placed to... Uh, take familiar stories and maybe look at them sideways, maybe write a slightly subversive account of them and question the received sort of uh, truths of those events. So I was a little bit worried that were I to write about Australia, I would not be able to write anything that asked the kinds of questions I like to ask when I'm writing creatively. Anyway, so I was sort of playing around with the idea of setting something in Australia. I was interested in the Barossa. I was interested in maybe considering the, the German immigrants who arrived here in the, in the mid-19th century, um, mainly because I was living in Melbourne at the time and no one there seemed to know about the many Germans who came to Australia, particularly South Australia, but also Queensland. And, you know, there were the inevitable things where I'd mentioned Fritz and no one knows was knew what I was talking about and would say, oh, you mean Devon? I'm like, surely not. Or Metverst or, you know, just saying, where's the deli? And people just blinking at me because, of course, it's Milk Bar. And so I'd, I'd ask, sometimes it would come up, you know, this sort of, this, this Germanic influence. Um, and I thought, well, you know, it's really curious that people don't really know about this, particularly because I feel like in South Australia, mm. the, the Germans or the Prussians who initially came over and then later the Germans contributed so much to our, you know, viticulture and our food cultures, our food ways uh, since, since the colonisation. And I thought there's something there because I think there's so much to... It's, it's, it's a meaty subject, you know. You, can, you go to the Barossa, it's a very important, very beautiful landscape. So I was thinking maybe I could set something there. And I started thinking about, I, I've always been drawn to what isn't in the dominant narratives. It's not so much what's there that interests me as the silences and the absences and the gaps, the perspectives which aren't necessarily shared when you turn to you know, historical archives or you read history books. And I, would, I was thinking a little bit about the women who came over. Um, mainly because I am related to these German immigrants on my father's side through his mother. And I'd been thinking about my grandmother and she, in many ways, I would always think of her when people spoke about the Germans because she embodied, embodied many of the, the virtues that were always attributed to them. She was very hardworking. Um, she was very self-deprecating. She put everyone else first. She was a wonderful homemaker, a very loving mother, a very devoted wife. And yet... I always loved those moments when she was in a comfortable situation or you just catch these glimmers of rebellion or these very funny jokes that she would make and you just get this fantastic sense that even though everything might be calm on the surface, you knew that there was this fantastic kind of consideration and, and maybe a disagreement that would sometimes just simmer beneath the surface. And I love that about my grandmother. Um, and I was, I was thinking, surely that would have been shared amongst many women who came over. Um, how did they even feel about being about immigrating? Were they as enthusiastic about it as many of the men had written that they were in the accounts that I had started to read? Um, I ended up finding a few sources which spoke actually about many of the women's homesicknesses that they rarely spoke about, only often with other women. I encountered a few uh, cultural practices which really interested me, like the idea of a fetish license, which is when all these Prussian women would gather around a table ahead of a marriage and strip the feathers, strip the down of feathers to contribute towards a, a wedding quilt. And I was sort of finding these little pockets of feminine experience within that sort of narrative of German emigrants. I thought, well, maybe I could write a novel about friendship. And the other reason I was thinking about this is because my previous two novels, for those of you who might be familiar with them, were, were quite dark. Both of them feature crimes, very serious crimes. Um, both of them are not necessarily what you would describe as cheerful books. Um, <laughs> And I was happy with that, you know, they, they, they were books that I needed to write at that time, but I was thinking, I don't think I can spend another three to five years, you know, researching 
prisons and executions. It's, <laughs> it's, it's going to do my head in. So I, I thought I wanted to celebrate something with this book. And so I started considering this idea of, of celebrating friendship between women and the idea of friendship as being this incredibly quiet yet s- sustaining force over a lifetime. And then 2017 happened and we had the uh, plebiscite and that was horrible for so many reasons and exciting for many reasons. And uh, when Australia voted in favour of same-sex marriage, my beautiful wife proposed to me and clearly I said yes. And, um, <laughs> and that made me, when I went back to writing, I was thinking, I, you know, maybe I'm always like, you know, Hannah, you're interested in these silences and absences. There's, you know, there's no, there's so few representations of same-sex relationships or, or same-sex love when you look at the historical narrative. And you know why that's the case. It's because it was, you know... People weren't aware of it or they didn't want to talk about it or it was shameful. And I started thinking maybe I could romanticise this friendship that I'd started envisaging between these characters I had in mind. Maybe they are basically in love with each other but because they essentially belong to a very pious community, they're unaware actually of the nature of their feelings. They think it's just this very meaningful friendship. And I sort of sat that for, with that for a little while. Mm. I started writing some early drafts and I kept on finding that it, it wasn't working. It kept on reverting. It wasn't working having characters who weren't aware of their own feelings for one another. Mm. But also when if I had one character who was, it kept on spinning around to become a narrative of, of shame mm. or self-repression. I thought, this is, not, this is not serving me. This won't serve anyone else. And then I thought, you know, I have been so blessed in my life to have a very profound love I want to make these characters absolutely know that they are in love with one another. And I don't want to write a narrative of shame. I don't want to write a narrative of ignorance or punishment. I want to celebrate it. Mm. And the book, once I sort of decided on that, um, the book just found its heartbeat. You know, it found its life force and everything went from there. Oh, thank you. Oh. Oh. Should I take my earrings out? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll, have, I'll keep one earring in for, you know, just turn my head this way. You might start a trend. <laughs> sorry about that. Thank you. <laughs> oh, and thank you for that answer, Hannah. That was so interesting to hear. Um, uh, I, I, especially the, the, the evolution of how you came to write about uh, the Germans in South Australia. I, I hadn't heard, heard you speak about that before. And it's, I, I th- it's interesting that you decided to write about that while you were in Melbourne where people didn't know about that. So it seems like, in a way, even though you were writing about a place that you know, you were writing about that from the perspective of almost of um, having an outside perspective on it. Yeah, I guess yeah. just being aware that people... I, I think I thought that people would find it interesting. Yeah. You know, yeah. rather than being, oh, this story again, you know, the Germans <laughs> again. Yeah, great. Um, so devotion is, even though there is obviously this, this research in there and it is based on uh, on uh, 19th century South... The, the history of Lutherans um, moving to South Australia, fleeing uh, religious persecution, and particularly one sea journey that you used, mm. it's also so much more of your imagination than your previous novels, which were also based on historical characters. Mm. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about that process and, and what it was like to, to take even more, much more of an imaginative leap. Yeah, it was freeing. I really mm. enjoyed it. I think, um, I think writing this book too, I was aware that if I did the same thing again, if I used the identical sort of method- mm. methodology that I had previously... I'd kind of be painting myself into a corner, creatively yeah. speaking. And I think um, so much of the joy of writing for me comes from the challenge. Um, I actually find writing really difficult and um, I, I find rewriting much easier, but I find, mm. I find writing inherently a challenge and that's why I find it to be a joyful process because I love the challenge. I love its difficulty. Um, that's where the pleasure of it for me is. So I didn't want to do the same thing because I felt it would be in some ways a safe option and I think mm. I would become bored. Yeah. Um, also, you know, it's, 
it's it's exciting, I think, to sometimes take creative risks and push mm. yourself, creatively speaking, into places, into new ground mm. to see if you can do it, to see if it works. Mm. Um, because it's it's always returns you back to that place of play, which I think is really important because mm. um, it stops all the white noise. If you're just sitting at your desk enjoying yourself, trying something new, you start to forget about, oh, maybe one day this book will be published and people <laughs> will hate it and all this sort of stuff. So um, part of part of, I guess... Um, unshackling myself from the historical archives was an attempt to sort of push myself to do something a little bit more creative and imaginative. It opened up my options, which was quite daunting mm. in terms of the sorts of decisions you're making, the characters you're creating and so on. Um, and I think also it was necessary uh, to leave behind the archives eventually after doing enough research to ensure that certain portrayals of events are accurate and you're not going to be, you know, um, annoying anyone or, you know, um, representing culture in such a way as to be offensive, for instance. Um, But with my first two novels, I was really working with an absolute dearth of information. There was actually very little available. So once I sort of found it, I knew what I had to work with. I'm sure there will be at least someone here who is related to the families who came out in the 19th century. And there are many, 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 many local histories, articles, diaries, journals. There's an abundance of information. And also all of it's in English, which it wasn't necessarily for my other two books. So I was sort of overwhelmed with just the vastness of family culture and the townships that were eventually settled on Paramankangana country. And so I sort of thought, wow, if I really try to honour the past and make sure I get every name right and every character right, I'm going to really annoy a lot of people. They're going to be like, you forgot my great-great-aunt Hedwig or, um, you know, I'm going to mess something up or there's going to be inaccuracies and I didn't want to sort of bring that wrath down upon myself. Mm. So I knew that I would have to fictionalise a lot of it and, and, you know, maybe draw on some real-time events but, but I gave myself permission to not necessarily ensure that everything was absolutely historically accurate. All the important stuff is. Mm. So for me, any depiction of suffering or misery or hardship I wanted to ensure was based on real circumstances because I think to invent that sort of stuff is kind of a bit icky because essentially you're writing a novel for entertainment purposes. Um, And obviously I didn't want to blatantly get purposely go against the narrative Mm. to try and, you know, um, further my own whims or my own opinions or ideologies. But at the same time, I wanted to be able to set all of that aside. And so I'm very open about the fact that a great deal of this book is based on the journey of the zebra Mm. and the foundation of of Handorf at Bocatilla. But it's not called Handorf in the book. Um, And if I have forgotten your great, great Aunt Hedwig, (laughs) um, it was intentional. (laughs) She's not meant to be in there. She's not (laughs) Was it at all daunting to having with your last two books had a basis for your protagonist to entirely invent your protagonist or was it just fun? No, it was it was daunting, absolutely, mm. because when once I sort of decided that I could make these characters whoever, I didn't need to have aspects of their personality tied to, you know, um, stuff in the archive like it was with the other two. Mm. Um, even minor characters, I would find something and I would I would make their character traits relevant to the facts that I found. Mm. Um, you sort of you suddenly like I could do I could do anything I can <laughs> you know and it was. Yeah, there was a, it kind of paralysed me for a little for a little time when I just mm. thought I just don't I just don't know. But I think in um, in some ways, it once it's always the thinking about it in anticipation or in front of the blank page, which is the most frightening. And then I think mm. you start, and it was a similar process in the end where the characters come alive to you even if they never existed in the first place. Mm. I still think of them as real people. <laughs> Which is, I remember Margaret Atwood once, she told an anecdote about being at a dinner party and someone was talking about someone they knew who had this particular quirk and she said, oh, I know someone like that and started talking about them and then realised it was a fictional <laughs> character of hers. <laughs> and I completely understand how that could happen. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, uh, I'd like to talk about a bit about religion and belief because they're so central to the no- the novel and I just found it so interesting the way that you wrote about these things as well. Um, so there are three main threads of that. Um, the Orthodox Lutheran villages of Kay who are fleeing persecution across the sea um, 
Anna Maria, one of the main characters who we haven't really talked about yet, mm. um, her persecution for what is labelled witchcraft. Uh, and then the total disregard uh, when the villagers arrive here for the Paramunk people and their beliefs, which is is not seen as are not seen as legitimate. I don't think they even imagine that that's something that they should be thinking about. Um, can you talk a bit about that aspect of the novel? Yeah, I think those concerns came up quite organically. I mean, mm. I knew writing about the Barossa, you trace that back to the. The, the first white settlements that were there and it was it was the German Prussians. So, and once you start researching that story, you know, I, I was aware, I think, of, of, you know, the fact that my own family is from Germany and that maybe they were related to families who had experienced this kind of persecution. Mm. I knew, I always knew that they were leaving for a reason. Mm. And then once I started to research what that reason was and found out about Frederick Wilhelm, William III and his increasingly repressive measures against dissenters who refused to accept his service book, uh, for the new Prussian Union Church, you find out that people, the pastors were fleeing and being imprisoned if they were caught acting in a pastoral role. You find out that churches were locked and bells were taken. It's, I mean, it's quite, it's an interesting part of history, mm. I think, and, and it's easy to feel sympathetic and compassionate towards the people who are undergoing that. And then um, sort of jumping over the second character who I'll get back to, mm. and then it's a natural, you know, living in this modern world, having a, a full, or hopefully as full as you, you can get, uh, an understanding of just the, the massive ways in which, you know, the colonisation of the country we now know as Australia has affected so many lives and has devastated so much and taken so much. You know, that's a, that's a, a natural comparison to mm. make as a modern author when you're looking at the persecution of a bunch of white people in Prussia who, in seeking freedom therefore go and oppress and, and essentially persecute, even if they're not completely aware of what they're doing, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, you know, another, another group of people. So I was interested in the idea of persecuted communities and the ways in which sometimes we can be so um, single-minded about what, what is important to us that we forget that it's actually completely harmful to others. So that was going to be an easy, mm -hmm. oh, not an easy, but that was a natural, organic comparison to make when you're writing about this stuff. And an important one, I think, mm. you know, because otherwise it come, came back to my initial hesitation to write about colonial Australia because, I, you know, I'm never going to write from the perspective of an Aboriginal character because mm. that's not my culture, that's not my space to take up, that's not my voice to use, you know, it's be completely, I don't want to appropriate that. Um, and so I was always going to have to write privileged the perspectives of, of white settlers and, and you know, that makes me feel deeply uneasy unless I can make it quite clear that these things are happening. Mm. Um, so that's the reason why those are there. And, I mean, religion necessarily had to be a big part of that with the first community because it was their life. Um, Anna Maria is the mother of Taya, um, Hannah's friend, who and that she both Anna Maria and Taya and the, Anna Maria's husband and Taya's father Friedrich uh, come to the village when they're still in Prussia because they are like Hannah's family, uh, dissenters. They are refusing to join the Union Church, and their pastor too had gone underground, and they had thought, like many families at that time did, that they would be able to emigrate. They sold up everything to get money for the for the fair. They had very few belongings, and this is true that the king basically revoked passports at the 11th hour, and many families were found themselves like homeless with very little to their name, um, really unable to suddenly resume that life of self-sufficiency, which many, many of them led. And so um, this family sort of comes into this small community, many of whom are dissenters, and I, uh, I was interested when I was reading about um, the Prussians and the Germans, uh, about the Vens, now in modern days known as, as Sorbs, who were a Slavic minority who lived in Prussia and in Germany around that time and still do, I believe. Um, and I was interested in them because they kept on popping up every time there was any sort of glimmer of superstition or mm. anything slightly strange. There's lots of stories, some of you might be aware, in the Barossa of witchcraft. Uh, if you're not aware, there's apparently still an altar for black masses in Kaiserstuhl Conservation Park, which someone <laughs> offered to show me, and I thought, oh, maybe one day. Um, and, uh, and, and so I would, because I was interested in this sort of aspect of, especially when you're looking at a very pious community, you're interested mm. in the sort of the, the edges, you know, what's, what are some other beliefs that people held? What are, how did it overlap with, you know, well, Satanism? Um, 
And so I came across the Wens then because people were often very suspicious of them. And many of them believed that although they were also old Lutherans, they, they had, had faith in the folk tales that they would talk about, you know, this idea of, you know, spirits who lived in water. Um, many of them were supposed to, be, to have copies of this quite famous grimoire uh, called the, the Sixth and Seventh Books of Moses, which were purportedly left out of the Bible but were nonetheless dictated to Moses on Mount Sinai by God. And in them was, one of the book was largely about herbal cures. There was a, actually a lot of herbalism amongst these communities. But the sixth book included a conversation with Satan. It included clues for, or, you know, directions to invoke demons for assistance, how to raise the dead, all sorts of, you know, a little bit advanced from your herbalism. <laughs> um, and once I started reading these incredible stories, you know, there's amazing stories in the Barossa of people who were suspected to be witches, and in Handorf too. In fact, mm. I think there was a mural in one of the pubs which showed the white and black witch of Handorf and, you know, the feud they had with one another. People used to wear red ribbons around their necks when passing certain houses. It was said that, you know, bonnets would suddenly turn into birds and then back again. A lot of this stuff is documented. Um, there was a couple in the Barossa who, was always, who were always suspected because they always had a lot of milk and butter and uh, they didn't have any children themselves and people started thinking oh you know they had associations with the Vendish community uh, maybe they're sort of doing something they ought not to and then uh, there's a story of someone peeping in their window one night and seeing them milking rope ends over a back of a chair and milk coming out the rope ends um, and you know stories again of Pastor, Pastor Cavell who some of you might know because he's now in an electoral district he, uh, he was very much against these books and against some of the Vens in these communities and, you know, people who were supposed to have owned a copy were dropped three times in their coffin before their funerals just to make sure that the evil had gone. You know, it was so much information. I couldn't believe it. So, I, you know, you do what every novelist does and you put all the juicy bits in a book. So um, <laughs> this is really what this, this wonderful character, she's very dear to me, Anna Maria, mm. comes to represent. But she also was able to act in many ways as a as an interesting contrast to Hannah, the main character's own parents, who mm. are, are quite rigid. Um, they're, they're stoic to the point of being uh, almost un in, incapable of expressing affection towards their children. Mm. Um, and I was interested in having a character who, for, for Hannah, represented something which was much more joy-filled and, and uh, flexible and, um, and sensual as well. So... Mm. So yeah, yeah, she's a great character. I really love her. Yeah, oh, yeah, I really love her too. And I, love I just realised I complimented myself on my own character. <laughs> You're allowed to, but she, I really like her. She's a real person to you, right? Yeah, she's I'll a talk character. about her at my next dinner party. <laughs> I have to say that one of the things I did on finishing the book was was googled, like looked up the sixth and seventh books of Moses because oh, yeah. I was really fascinated by that. So I'm glad that you touched on that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only translation I had to do. I found it in German. Um, mm. and I don't speak German. I can read a little bit of it, but um, only because I did this, basically, which was spend every night once the kids had gone to bed mm -hmm. translating this grimoire. Um, and then I realised at one stage that I was translating the... <laughs> I was translating the Invocation for Demon Assistance. <laughs> I thought to myself, I wonder if the demon knows. I'm not... My heart's not in it. I'm really just trying to... <laughs> Work with Google here, yeah. <laughs> well, well, did it assist you? <laughs> we'll see how the book goes. <laughs> Ooh. No, 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 no demon. No demon thanked in the acknowledgements. <laughs> I, I've read the acknowledgements. I can confirm there yeah. is no demon thanked, yeah. no. Um, I, you've said that it felt inevitable to write about You've talked about some of the reasons you wanted to write about religion and belief, but you've also said that um, write it because you knew you were writing about a queer relationship that was set at that time. It felt like you needed to have religion as a part of the novel. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I think it was... Um, I just knew that religion was going to be central to this mm. community um, because of the circumstances of their persecution. Um, you know, this is... their I mean the reasons why they refused to accept the service book might to a sort of seem trivial to our sort of modern minds. There was the Eucharist um, did not necessarily declare the real presence of Christ in it in this new service book. And that was enough for them to be 
you know, to endure all sorts of kinds of prosecution and imprisonment because they were adamant that it needed to be stated. So there were these, you know, there was a real, the, the faith was concrete, you know. Mm. It was, but not only that, these are people, um, the characters in my novel, the community that they're based on were largely, you know, had, had farms, they were fairly self-sufficient, not wealthy people. Um, and so re- the church also formed a big part of the administration of their lives and the way they went about their, their daily business and their labour, you know, no work on Sundays. Um, and that, w- that was very important. Uh, no, you know, the bell, the church bell would call them to work. They would be summoned here and there in their lives mm. by the church bell. The pastor had utmost authority. Um, and so, you know, necessarily the, the threads of religion weren't just going to sort of be the preamble mm. to them leaving. It was going to be something which was absolutely fundamental. It was bedrock to these people. And I was interested in writing in sort of... <laughs> I mean, it might have also been a quite a stupid idea initially, but I thought, you know, I wanted to I wanted to write about love not in a way that was oppositional to faith mm. or belief, um, but could exist alongside it as another form of devotion, as an overlapping form of devotion and of surrender and faith and trust. And I wanted to sort of hold the two. I wanted to honour both, I guess, not mm. necessarily have, you know, I, I, you know, pit the church against the queers, so to speak. Mm. I wanted to look at the ways in which um, there is so much which is similar about that. And also to acknowledge that I think in any kind of relationship which, which has a profound love and devotion at the centre of it, that there is something divine because it is a, it both carry a, a selflessness and both find meaning in a greater force and a surrender to that force. So those were the sorts of things that I was interested when I was considering those, those very big things which, which shape the days um, in our lives. Mm, I know, that's beautiful. And I think the way you, you write about, as you say, um, the divinity of their love as well and that that doesn't have to... that, that those things exist alongside each other... Um, Hannah's communion with nature, which is very important to her and is, is like a, um, a kind of a, a faith or form of belief almost for her as much like alongside her religion as mm-hmm. well. Like the three of those things all kind of coexist and there's not a hierarchy, they're just, yeah. they intertwine. I thought that was quite beautiful. And there's one passage in particular where... Um, where Hannah and Taya are in the forest and those three things come together. Um, yeah, oh, so, yeah, I just wondered, um, yeah, if you wanted to say anything about that. Yeah, it was, it was true. I wanted to sort of um, not... So Hannah, the, the main character, she has a kind of... I've described it before as a kind of synesthesia where she, mm. she hears... The weather, she hears trees speaking to her or singing to her. She she experiences the landscape in a way that is um, profound to her, and which is and it borders on the divine. And it really sort of, uh, when the book opens, her community are holding their church, their lay services in the absence of their pastor, in the forest at midnight. Mm. And to her, you know, that's that's rapturous for her mm. because it unites this communion that she's always felt with nature and her faith in God and her love for God, which are not separate. I think it's not quite pantheistic, but I think it. Um, it's for her. It's it's all one and the same. And she doesn't. She says she doesn't really understand why everyone's so sad that they're locked out of the church because she doesn't see God <laughs> as, you know, being locked within those walls. It's something which is manifest in in a multitude of other aspects of her life, including um, her great love and 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 the the company, uh, the, the companionship that that the landscape and the nature bring her, and also ultimately the love then that she is able to feel for for Taya. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's, it's they're all. I, I'd like to see them as sort of in harmony with each other, rather than mm. you know three separate aspects of her life. And certainly, as time goes on, they become more and more intertwined until they're all essentially the one thing. Mm. Mm, absolutely. And I think I mean it's it's lovely the way that you bring in um, uh, as you mentioned earlier that um, when uh, these these villages, uh, the Orthodox Lutherans, were locked out of their churches, um, that a lot of them, they were, um, they had to hold their services in the forest and that that was, you know, a bad thing. But for Hannah, it was beautiful. I thought, mm. yeah, that was great. Um, 
I think that we uh, it's time for audience questions. So if you have a question for Hannah, uh, please uh, do raise your hand. We have a roving mic here and we'll get it to you. Uh, do we have any questions to start? Otherwise, I'll just keep on talking to Hannah. <laughs> um, not yet. Uh, do we have one in the front row here? No, sorry, you're touching your hair. Okay, I'll continue. It's like an option. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You don't have to ask a question. <laughs> do we have one there? No. Um, so many things I'd like to ask you. So, uh, you know, you don't need to ask questions. Um, Yes, I, I know that you were saying there are aspects of yourself in Hannah mm. and particularly her passionate communion with nature um, and you grew up in the Adelaide Hills uh, which and you were talk, talking to me another time about how the natural beauty of that growing up um, influenced you mm. and the novel. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I've, it's, it's the older I get, the more I realise what a gift it was to grow up in a in a place like the Adelaide Hills on Paramount Country. It's, um, you know, I've had the great fortune also to travel a lot in my life, and I've been to many places and lived in some other places as well, other countries. And now I find myself living there again. And I think it's really because I've never found anywhere else in the world like it. Mm. Um, it's a place to me um, of serenity and escape and beauty, ever-changing beauty and respite. And um, there, was a real, there was a real joy in being able to write about this place and to try and think about what, what I love about it and then kind of distill it into prose um, clumsily because you can never encapsulate the beauty of it all but still to try and do it and then, um, and then to have a character for whom nature is so important. You know, I was, um, I have lots of, I'm actually a very, I'm a, my wife will tell you I'm a very forgetful person. Um, I have a terrible short-term memory. But some of my, the keenest memories in my life are of when I was a child and alone in, you know, on, at, at, in my family's place. Um, and, you know, every, anything from waking up and seeing a mist over the dam and walking down to the bottom paddock in my gumboots and hearing... Mm -hmm the frost on the grass crackle. Uh, we had a big oak tree uh, at our place and I would lie underneath it and dream and read and, you know, before I knew that tree hugging was a thing in the 60s and 70s, you know, I remember <laughs> hugging the tree and I, 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 I was a very imaginative child too. So this combination, I don't think that's a, a, a coincidence that um, so much of the reading I did outside kind of started to converge with this, this sense of, um, of the natural world being awake um, and and listening and and in my being able to commune with it essentially um, and I think you know for so many of us nature has this we're still we're still finding out the research the science is still finding out all the miraculous things about the natural world uh, specifically with trees for instance this is what I'm thinking of obviously mm -hmm. there's science and the natural world is a pretty big topic um <laughs> but specifically you know the way we're discovering all this stuff about fungi and the interconnectedness of things is, is I think what I'm talking mm. about here and I felt connected as a child when I was out in nature mm. and so I wanted to I wanted to talk about that and it was really lovely actually it was mm. a lovely aspect of writing about the book particularly because simultaneously Hannah is a is a uh, adolescent who uh, feels that she doesn't really fit in to um, either the social roles required of her within this small community or with her peers. And I think those things were often true for me growing up. Um, mm. So in some ways, in, in there's, a, there's a lot of my young self, I think, in Hannah and her desire to <laughs> be alone in nature, but also <laughs> to be accepted um, within, within her social group. Yeah, and you write really beautifully, I think, about... That, um, that feeling alone but also wanting to connect with other people and that, that sort of strange um, contrast, like contrasting um, desires. Um, Hannah reflects of the other girls in her village when she's watching them before she meets Taya. Um, how do they know how to be? How does anyone know how to be? Um, and I, I think obviously part of that is, you know, she just... Their souls who recognise it one yeah. another. Um, but I wonder if perhaps that feeling of having been an outsider before, if that um, 
that fed into that intensity of that I relationship. I think so. I think anyone who's or, you know ever felt like a bit of an outsider or felt like they've been beamed in from elsewhere mm. or finds you know uh, sort of social social stuff a little bit challenging or difficult or it doesn't come easily, you know, when you finally meet someone who you don't have to perform for, you mm. don't have to you don't have to play a role, you don't have to be anyone other than yourself and you are not only seen as yourself but utterly accepted as that that's a very powerful thing Mm. um and quite a rare thing i think Mm. sometimes as well to be seen and to be to be totally recognized and to be utterly accepted unconditionally accepted Mm. um yeah and that's yeah that's something i think that i wanted to celebrate again in writing this book is just how how special that can be Mm. yeah beautiful (laughs) um you, you've talked about your interest in exploring the way that emotions, like grief, fear, anger, love, are uh, expressed differently through time mm. but stay essentially the same um, and how that's one of your interests in writing historical fiction is exploring that. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think sometimes, and I, this is just me talking personally, people might have mm. a very different experience, but sometimes when I think about the past and the people who lived in it, they seem very different and strange because of the way they dressed or the ideologies they held. And I think when you access those universal human emotions, it, it creates a point of connection, um, both for me initially as a writer trying to access these characters, knowing that people fell in love and, you know, laughed and and found things funny or amusing and got angry and, and just were very, mm. you know, all those very human things which don't really change over time mm. is one way that I can kind of time travel and access them and it makes them real and human. Um, I think it can create intimacies then once once I've sort of done my job as a writer, hopefully to it allows readers to create those same intimacies and to, and to recognise these people as being mm. humans, not being these sort of odd little people wearing black wedding dresses, you know, in the <laughs> past and singing a lot of hymns. Suddenly they become people that you can have absolutely relate to and it's also about I think accessing um, you know the rich inner life which fiction does so well Mm. Um, Mm. and one of the reasons why I love writing it is because you're not just looking at sort of historical backdrops you're accessing what makes people tick and I think those things don't the 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 context and the circumstances might change but ultimately Mm. the emotional drives I think are are fairly consistent. Mm. So it sounds like it's almost a puzzle between that those things that are different and then those things that are universal and stay yeah. the same, putting those things together. Yeah, so you'll have yeah. the same emotion, but like how we even respond to that emotion might change or whether mm. it's okay to even express that emotion within our particular societies or cultures might shift and ebb. But ultimately, you know that that person is having it. And because fiction can go into the internal world, it's one way of, I guess, exemplifying that that even though even though the set is unusual and mm. interesting or novel, essentially the people at the heart of it are, are not so different. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I'm just going to remind everyone before I ask Hannah this next question that you can ask questions if you like. Just if you do want to ask a question, just raise your hand and Jane, who has the mic, will come to you and just like let me know when... Yes, is there someone? Hello. Um, Hi. My... Family also came from Prussia on my father's mother's side. Oh, um, but my question is, um, so they, they, they were Lutheran. I didn't grow up Lutheran. But I'm just wondering on the religious aspect, did that come from your personal upbringing? No, I wasn't. Um, I did attend church when I was a teenager, but that was of my own volition. Um, I wasn't necessarily raised within the Lutheran church. So on some, and I guess in some ways I did come as a bit of an outsider to certain um, practices but I felt that anyway because I think the Lutheran church has changed quite significantly I mean one of the interesting things about these people who came over these this Prussian congregations was that within a you know within a couple of decades it all split and had schisms anyway which is why we have so many different Lutheran mm. churches sometimes on different sides of the road and angrily facing one another <laughs> because they continued to disagree I mean you had um, some of them, for instance, uh, were millennialists. They they were killiest. They believed that that Jesus would return and walk amongst them. And there's a very funny, well, I probably shouldn't say funny, but it's quite an amusing anecdote of Pastor Cavell, which 
I'm still not sure is entirely accurate, where he apparently led his congregation, this is later in the 19th mm. century, up into um, the, where Kaiserstuhl Conservation Park is to await the return of Christ because he'd done his calculations <laughs> and believed he was coming back. But there was just a massive rainstorm and they just got completely saturated and then came back down much to the you know vindication of the other congregations who had disagreed with him. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's... Um, it was an interesting thing for me to research and read about because it, it didn't necessarily feel personal, so I didn't feel offended or slighted at the at the various you know aspects of it. It was more just you know a gentle curiosity which allowed me to write about it in the way that I have. Mm. Mm. Great. And you have said you're um, quite a spiritual person as well. So does that mean like the fact that you're actually in, you're quite interested in faith and belief? Did yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's a big part of my life. Um, and it's not something that I'm going to spell out in intricate detail because it's it's personal to me. Mm. Um, but it's absolutely something that I'm that I'm interested in. And I think I'll always be interested in institutions of faith, just as I am in expressions and and of faith and faith itself. Mm. Mm. Great. Uh, do we have another question? Or yeah, um, I'd just like to say I'm in awe at the amount of um, research and how you can create a place in time. And when you time travel, just exactly how do you decide where you're actually going to land? Um, <laughs> That's a very good question. I, uh, you know, I think um, so much of my writing in the past has been kind of this push-pull with research mm. and, and creativity. Um, so by that I mean I'll start... You know, initially I might just have a sense of something being interesting or just having a personal curiosity. And so I'll start to read about it, not necessarily even thinking, will this be a good book, but just, you know, I want to know more. You know, I, I'm very... <laughs> I get very excited about learning new things. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, I, just, I just like to discover things. And so I'll start, I'll start reading and then that reading might turn into research and then I might mm. find something when I'm researching that sparks off another creative thought or impulse and I'll go off with that for a little while. And, and then I might return to, to the books or the archive, but in a slightly different way. I might go to different archives or I might start looking at recipe books or, and then I'll go off and start thinking about character. So it's this kind of, it's not so much getting into a, 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 you know, a, a time travel machine and landing with a bump. It's more just like um, walking while daydreaming and realising <laughs> that you've landed in a completely different you know, century. Uh, that's probably <laughs> the closest I can describe the process. But yeah, it's, 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 um, I'm not a great planner. I'd never set out and be like, right, next book's going to be set here. This is what it's going to be about. I just sort of walk backwards into it, you know, looking up at all the really interesting things around me. Great. Uh, is, do we have time for one last question or... Yep. Great. Uh, do we have someone else who wants to ask one uh, or shall I? some done here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I was just wondering, when did you first start um, writing? Um, well, my parents are here tonight. They can probably tell you. Um, <laughs> Look, we have video evidence of me writing very bad poetry from quite a young age. Um, <laughs> you know, it's something that I can't actually remember not really doing once I was you know, physically able to write. Um, I used to write very tragic poems about earthquakes and all these natural disasters I'd never personally experienced because they felt dramatic to me. And we have we have one about a, a you know a 7.0 earthquake on the Richter scale. It was a f I had obviously learned the term Richter scale and wanted to put it into a poem. <laughs> I have poems about the Royal Adelaide show. You know, it was, there's a lot of dross. Um, but it was something that was always part and it, it was always... Uh, it always just gave me pleasure and it was always part of the way that I played and interacted with the world. So, yeah, from, from an early age. But yeah, when it started to get a bit better, then, you know, poems featuring Richter scale and, you know, other very bad rhyming couplets about my show bags that I got, um, it's hard to say. I'm not sure. It's been, a, it's been an ambling journey. Hello. I was really, oh, I was really um, pleased that you uh, did a, uh, examine the, uh, the way the people coped with coming out in the sailing ship and that there was typhus on board mm -hmm. and that it was so horrifying. Mm -hmm. And I thought that it was wonderful to read that because I'd read the factual book that Michael Veach had written about the hell ship. Mm. And that was wonderful because that was 
historical in the sense that you, you, you knew what was going on, but you couldn't get inside the individual's um, you know, minds, whereas mm. your novel brought it all to life. And I thought that was really good. Oh, thank you so much for that. <laughs> thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I think, I think you know, it's like what we were saying earlier, right, about, about fiction. I mean, I'm, you asked when I wrote, I was a reader for far longer mm. whenever that started, and I'll be a reader for far beyond that too. Um, but that's why I love that. I think that's the joy of reading both fiction and non-fiction is that I think they can really work together to, to colour particular events and to give us a strong sense of not only exactly what happened and why that was important, but, but how it affected people on a very human level. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, is, is it time for us to wrap? We can have one more? Okay. <laughs> when you were talking to Richard Feidler, you said two things that were very startling. One of them was that the soil in Clemsig was no good for growing things. <laughs> and the other one was that the Pioneer Women's Walking Trail down to Adelaide was probably originally a Paramank trail. Mm -hmm. I just wondered if there were any other startling things you found out about the history of Adelaide that we don't normally know about. Oh, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> Great question. I'm going through the Rolodex of interesting things I write down in my very chaotic notebooks. Um, yeah, I mean, there's an abundance of stuff, but I think it's just you have to, you have to comb through it. I mean... My interest, as soon as I knew that I was going to sort of keep to this congregation because they were pretty closed and I wasn't really going to look at Adelaide more generally, you kind of, you know, you winnow away a lot of research opportunities and you start to focus on what's just going to be important to your story. So I didn't actually spend a lot of time researching Adelaide during that time, only in the ways in which my characters would have interacted with the people. So, for instance, the, the trail. Um, there were a lot of very shocking things reading the ship's captain's journal, um, which I spoke a little bit about on Richard Fadler's program. Um, mainly, and the reason why they were so shocking is largely because I'd already read most of the journal, which is a very you know, dry account of this journey with occasional details slipped in, but largely it's the story of a ship's captain's hatred of his chronometer, which is his sailing instrument. And he just <laughs> right, he was just obviously very frustrated and wrote about it at length until you get to the end. And this was sort of this epilogue that he added I think even after the first version of the journals had been published, and this is where he starts to account for all the conflicts which occurred on board. Mm. And you start to hear... I mean, the, the fact that the ship's surgeon wanted to trial his new version of a smallpox vaccination with a live vaccine mm. on board a ship amongst the children who were already unwell, to me, is shocking. You know, this man is clearly hugely incompetent and luckily the captain caught that as well. But even the, you know, the fact that this was a ship's captain, this was a ship's surgeon who, you know, was very kind of glib when people confronted him with the fact that there was ground glass in it. And we still, to this day, don't really know whether that was mere accident or whether it was something much more sinister. So, I mean, there were... As soon as you start peeling away the top layers of any sort of dominant narrative, you find really interesting things. I loved, for instance, a lot of the details about um, the food cultures that many of the women brought over. And, you know, this I, there was this great story that I read, which isn't in the book at all, but people um, would, would uh, not use not make sourdough in the sense that we would necessarily understand it now with a wet culture that often dry it or sometimes just bottle it. And there was this, this family who had this very old culture that would they were using to make bread. And they made some bread and it wasn't rising. And they thought, oh, what are we going to, you know, they made dough in vast quantities, you know, these giant bread bins. They're like, oh, we'll just bury, bury this dough, which isn't rising. And then over the next course of days, this large mound under the <laughs> earth started growing. You know, these fantastic little stories that you, that you encounter. And I wish I could include all of them in there. But, um, yeah, if anyone interested, I would, I would really recommend reading the journals of Dirk Hahn, which are in the State Library of Australia. Um, and, yeah, reading some other wonderful books uh, by, for instance, the writers Angela Hosenroda about the food cultures of the Barossa and Norris Yano has a great book about the Barossa as well. Um, Annie Lua Fox has written some really entertaining anecdotes about Handorf. Colin Tierley's written a great deal. Um, yeah, there's a, you know, I can provide a bibliography to anyone <laughs> who's interested. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean, it's amazing. And, and with every single anecdote that you start reading, which is kind of funny or strange or kind of just outright bizarre, this idea of the past being this very sort of formal, mm. you know, uh, series of events kind of completely is dismantled and you realise life was just as chaotic and, and weird and, and humorous as it is now. Mm. Great. 
the bunks that were shoddily yeah. made and fell apart on board the ship. Yes. Was that something that was real? Yes, that happened, yeah. So wow. everything, uh, the, the, the ship's journey, the, of which was six months, takes up quite a big section in the book and every single major sort of disaster which occurs on there is drawn from the ship's, the captain's journals. So a few days after they set out into finally open sea, keeping in mind that the passengers were all immediately seasick, no one was spared, uh, many of them had never even seen the ocean before, or uh, they were all in bed being unwell, you can imagine vomiting into buckets and things like that. And then the bunks, the top bunks, um, there were two rows, very all close together, two people to each bunk. With if you had a kid, that you'd have to, you'd have even less space because you'd put another plank there to make a cot for your child. Um, they all collapsed on top of the people sleeping underneath, um, and they tried to repair them. The captain found them some equipment, but they were so badly made in the first place because the ship wasn't designed to carry emigrants, just goods, um, that they couldn't even repair them. And so people ended up having to sleep up on deck in the open weather even though the deck was so filled with boxes that couldn't be stored in the hold that people had to climb over barrels to get from one side of the ship to the other. So, I mean, this kind of information, I mean, pff, my imagination's not that good. I can't make that up, so <laughs> I'll, I'll lean on the records for that stuff. Look, I'll, I'll leave it on the note of saying Hannah's imagination is actually amazing <laughs> and once you read the book, you will get what I mean, but, yeah. Um, Thank you so much, Hannah. I've just loved this conversation and have learnt more from it, despite having read quite a few things and talked to you about it before. <laughs> so, excellent. Um, thank you so much to Marion Libraries for hosting this. Um, and thank you to Dimix Glenelg, who will be selling books in the foyer, and uh, Hannah will be out there signing them. And remember, Christmas is coming up, so you might want an extra sign to someone. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> thank you, everyone.